Grace and peace to you this morning in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're so glad that you're here with us today. We are continuing our series entitled Wonderfully Made, which is a theology of the body, a series on sexual ethics. And um, I just want to say thank you to those who have uh, uh, reached out to me and encouraged me uh, in, in this series. It's not the easiest series to preach on, but it's a subject that we need to be talking about and that we should do so humbly and, and kindly, but also unapologetically. Uh, we, we need to uh, talk about sexual ethics because it's certainly what our culture and what our world is talking about. C.S. Lewis, in his um, famous book, Mere Christianity, once penned these words. He said, chastity is the most unpopular of the Christian virtues. There is no getting away from it. The Christian rule is either marriage with complete faithfulness to your partner or else total abstinence. Now this is so difficult and so contrary to our instincts that obviously either Christianity is wrong or our sexual instinct as it now is has gone wrong. One or the other, of course, being a Christian, I think it is the instinct which has gone wrong. Sometimes it's hard for us to understand where we are because everything seems so normal. We are immersed into a culture when we are born, and we may know nothing else. When we pick up the Bible or even a book that was written a long time ago, the world in the Bible or the world in an ancient book seems so foreign to us. And we struggle to grasp how life was or even how life should be. And this is especially true when it comes to the topic of sexuality. How we understand sexuality is radically different than any time before us. It has infused all aspects of our culture in ways that, that we ourselves are, are not always completely aware of. Never has sexuality been what it is today. And we must answer the, the question that, that C.S. Lewis raises in Mere Christianity. Either the Bible is wrong or the culture is wrong. Either God is wrong or society is wrong. Both cannot be true. And we must choose. Will we follow God or will we follow the majority? What is going to be our source of wisdom? Do we look within ourselves for wisdom? Or do we look outward to God? And those are important questions. They, they are serious questions. And we answer them... Whether we realize it or not, we answer them by how we choose to live our lives. And we may ask ourselves, well, why is this so difficult? Why is it so confusing? One of the reasons a subject like sexuality is so challenging is because of how we arrive at what we believe about morality. Now, we would like to all believe that we are rational beings who carefully consider the evidence and then arrive at truth. 
But that's just not so. And Carl Truman describes how views change and how we come to determine what is acceptable and what is not. He writes this. He says, we tend to pick up the intuitions of the world around us, internalize them, and make them our own. We don't always think in terms of first principles when we think about morality. A good example might be provided by the gay marriage issue. Most people have not come to find gay marriage acceptable by reading heavy tomes of sexual ethics or sociology. Most people have gay friends or have seen attractive images of gay couples and things like the sitcom Will and Grace. It's not that they've been convinced by argument. It's that their intuitions have been shaped by broader cultural patterns. I found that very helpful in approaching this notion of the modern self. It's not that we get up one morning and decide, let's be expressive individuals. The very air we breathe shapes, tilts, and bends our intuitions towards that result. Truman's description of how views change is fascinating. We often change our minds not because we've heard a good argument or we've weighed the evidence, but because we are influenced by our environment. We accept things without contemplating if they are good or true or beautiful. We embrace what is in the culture without ever considering if this is truly what God wants. When it comes to what we believe, especially uh, regarding big issues, we should pause and ask ourselves, how did I arrive at this conclusion? Am I being influenced by the culture? Do I believe this because it's just something that I want to believe? Or have I put more thought into it? Did I study God's word? Did I consult experts? Did I research the evidence? Sometimes we accept changes without even noticing that we've done so. They happen so slowly that that we cannot pinpoint a time when the change took place. And we've seen a lot of big changes recently uh, related to to sexuality. But but many of these changes uh, were in the works for for years and years before they happened. One example of this is how sexuality is now tied to identity. This is something that has never happened before in the history of humanity. It is completely new. Before, sexuality was always seen as a behavior. It was something that you did. It was never who you were. And Carl Truman, again, has written extensively about this. And I want you just to take, we're going to take a few minutes and listen to him explain how sexuality is understood today. And so watch this brief video where he explains this. The mistakes that Christians often make about LGBTQ plus stuff is we tend to think of sex in terms of behavior. What behaviors are acceptable and what are unacceptable. Uh, for an LGBTQ plus person, somebody involved in that movement, yes, there, there are behaviors, there appear sexual behaviors that serve to define that movement to some extent. But underlying it is the idea that actually what's going on is uh, a matter of identity. 
the LGBTQ plus movement really rests on the idea that fundamentally definitive of, of who you are is not so much how you behave sexually, but the sexual desires you experience. Those are the things that define you as being who you are. So you can be a, a gay person who never engages in sexual activity. If your desires are for somebody of the same sex, then your sexual desires for somebody of the same sex, then you are a, a gay person, even if you never engage in, in any kind of physical gay sexual activity. That's an interesting development. Partly, uh, it's, it's it, pretty unprecedented in human history that we now define ourselves in terms of our sexual desires. So there's, there's an element of uh, historical novelty about this. Uh, and secondly, it's an important point for Christians to grasp. If we're going to understand the, the temperature, the political temperature that surrounds these discussions. Uh, it's often said, you know, why is it such a big deal that a cake baker won't bake a cake for a, for a, a, a gay wedding? Uh, well, it's a big deal for the LGBTQ plus community because in refusing to bake a cake for a gay wedding, you're not simply depriving that person of, of an item of food, you're actually denying their identity. And I think that's where the challenge lies for Christians when they're thinking about these issues, is that we need to realize we are not simply debating uh, the bounds of where legitimate and illegitimate Christian behavior begin and end. We're actually debating what it is that constitutes us as human beings. Should we define ourselves in terms of our sexual desires, be those desires gay or straight, or should we define ourselves uh, using some other register or point of reference? For Christians, of course, our identity is not to be rooted primarily in uh, inner feelings, our desires, be they sexual or otherwise. Our identity is to be rooted by the fact that we are created in the image of God and united to Christ. And the Bible makes it very clear that that status we have, that identity we have, comes with certain imperatives relative to our behavior, some of which are, uh, involve the nature of our sexual behavior. Uh, so it's not to say that uh, we're to play the game of sexual identity. We just need to come up with a different sexual identity to that of the LGBTQ movement. We need to realize that our identities are not fundamental primarily sexual anyway. We're rooted in the image of God, rooted in our union with Christ, and that brings with it a framework of behavior of which uh, sexual behavior, celibacy outside of marriage, chastity within it, is an important part of who we are and how we are to behave. Well, I've found a uh Truman's explanation there, very helpful. In fact, um, he's written this book entitled Strange New World. We have a couple copies up here if you would uh, be interested in that and to learn more. But the issue that we face in modern times when it comes to sexuality, as, as he says in the video, is not just behavioral. It's about who we are. It's about where we're going to find our identity. And it's not uncommon today to tie identity to sexuality. We speak of identifying as heterosexual or homosexual or something else. And again, this idea is new. It has never existed in the past. And when we turn to Scripture, Scripture presents a very different idea concerning identity 
For Christians, we find our identity in who God created us to be, and we find our identity in Jesus Christ. And this is important for the text that we want to look at today. Sexuality has become so elevated and idolized in our culture that there are some things that we ourselves refuse to consider. The culture has even influenced the church. Jesus and Paul are both explicit about the issue of celibacy. But these are passages that are ignored in most Christian congregations. And this is a mistake. Now, celibacy is not for everyone, but neither is marriage for everyone. And when we take celibacy off the table, we make it more difficult on people who do not want to get married or people who may be wrestling with same-sex attraction. Celibacy also does not have to be a permanent status. And so a, a person should, for instance, remain celibate until they are ready to get married. A, a person who loses their spouse may choose to be celibate for a period of time or for the rest of their life. And when we refuse to talk about celibacy, we're robbing these individuals of an important understanding of their status in life. And so before we unpack this more, I want us to look at at two of the passages on this subject which are, are most clear. The first is found in Matthew chapter 19, and this comes right after Jesus' teaching on divorce. And, and here he's having a conversation uh, with his disciples, and it says the disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying. So in other words, this is not for everyone, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. And so he says there there are some who choose to remain celibate for the purpose of, of devoting themselves to God's kingdom. And then you have uh, 1 Corinthians 7, a lengthier passage where Paul writes, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then, he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. And so what do we learn from these two passages? First, we we learn that celibacy is not for everyone. And it's not something 
that should be forced upon another person. And so the church or anyone else should not determine for you whether uh, you should or should not be celibate. It is a personal decision that every individual must make them themselves. But second, we learn here that both Jesus and Paul see celibacy as a higher calling. Why? You know, one of the things that we've noticed over the last several weeks is how important both marriage and family is. God thinks highly of marriage and family. The first commands that he gives are about marriage and family. Jesus, Paul, and others return to those first commands when they talk about marriage and family. And so they're foundational for humanity. But they're not for everyone. A person may choose to remain celibate, but how is this greater than marriage and having kids? Well, we must remember, we might, might go back to that lesson a few weeks ago that we had on marriage in the Bible. And, and remember, there's more than one marriage in the Bible. There's the marriage between a man and a woman described in Genesis. This is the marriage that most of us are familiar with. It's the one that we grew up with. It's, it's the one that, that many of us have practiced. However, later in Scripture, there's also the marriage of Christ to the church. And so Jesus and Paul can say celibacy is a higher calling because a celibate person is able to devote themselves more fully to spiritual matters. A celibate person can begin to live out the life that is to come when there will be no marriage because we will all be married to Christ. Paul sums it up this way. He says, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. And so to be celibate is an opportunity to serve Jesus. What's Paul getting at here? One of the things he's getting at, which is important in his culture and important in ours today, is that sex is not the highest calling. The highest calling is spirituality. The highest calling is a life devoted to God. And we should honor and cherish anyone who chooses such a calling. We should encourage them and assist them in any way that we can. We must also recognize that people may choose celibacy for different reasons. A person may choose it because they're wrestling with unwanted sexual desires. In the past, many churches mistakenly treated homosexuality as the Pharisees treated leprosy. It was something that you did not talk about and you tried your best to avoid. We created an environment where people were afraid to discuss their feelings and attractions. And this is something that we were going to have to get past. We are all different and we all struggle with different temptations. And church should be the one place that we feel comfortable discussing what it is that we are tempted by. If a person chooses celibacy for religious reasons or because of sexual temptation, then we as Christians have a responsibility to support them. Why? Because we are brothers and sisters, we are sons and daughters, we are mothers and fathers in Christ. And those are more than just labels. 
We are family. We were not created to be alone, as we read in the book of Genesis. This is true whether a person chooses celibacy or not. We have a responsibility to Christians who choose a celibate lifestyle. We have a responsibility to young singles, to widows, and to widowers. We have a responsibility to orphans and others who find themselves abandoned by their families. We are to open our homes and and open our tables to people around us. All Christians are to are to practice an open table policy. We are to live as relatives in Christ. And we should do this at all times. But we have to start somewhere. And so as we're thinking about this today, I have a suggestion. Let's start with Sunday. Let's start with the Lord's Day. Couldn't we all agree to act like the Lord's people on the Lord's day. I don't think that's asking too much. And here's what we can do. From this point forward, let's all agree that no one who worships with us on Sunday morning will ever eat alone. And so if you are a widow or a widower, you get an invitation to lunch from someone. If you are a single person, then you get an invitation to lunch. If you have chosen to devote yourself to the Lord and to live a celibate lifestyle, God bless you. You get an invitation to lunch. If you're a visitor who came all by yourself, you get an invitation to lunch. And I think this is something that that we can do. We can make sure that everyone who worships with us on Sunday morning is going to be treated like family, like a brother or sister, like a mother or father, like a son or daughter. The teachings we find in the Bible on celibacy are not just for a select few. They should remind us all that sex is not something that is to be idolized. There are more important things in this world than sex and sexuality. The highest calling a person can devote themselves to is to following Jesus. And we are here this morning to remind ourselves of this calling and to support one another in this calling. We are Jesus followers. And because of this, what we do with our bodies matters. It matters to God, and it matters to the people around us. And so may we live in such a way that brings glory to Christ, who laid down his life for us. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning, and we thank you for all that you've done for us. We thank you for blessing us with life. We thank you for giving us the wisdom of your holy word so that we do not have to look within for truth and wisdom, but that we can look to you and realize that you know better than we do. 
that we live in a confusing world. And it's sometimes hard to know what it is that we should do, but when we need guidance, we're grateful that we can always turn to you and to listen to what you have to say and to humble ourselves before you and to follow you. Father, we've learned this morning that you have given us a high calling. There are many priorities in this world. We're busy people because we have priorities, but the greatest priority, the greatest calling is to follow you. May we do this and may we encourage one another in this. We're so thankful for Jesus who has taught us how to do this. And we pray this in his name. Amen.